If we listen to Pope Francis, it's the margins that we need to be paying attention to, not as a charitable exercise, but as a listening post for developing our theology and our pastoral practices. The cries of the poor are what needs to shape our theological understanding as Catholics. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Peter John Pearson is the Vicar General of the Archdiocese of Cape Town and also the Director of the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office. I'm with him today to speak to him about his own life as a priest, where it all began, the charismatic movement, something which is very close to his heart, and his engagement socially and politically throughout the struggle and still today in South Africa. I am Ricardo de Silva, and this is Expanding Horizons. Peter John, welcome. Thank you. You've been a priest for how long now? 32 years. <laughs> Wonderful. Won't you tell us what that journey involved? You know, when did it begin? Whoever knows when a journey begins, a journey such as priesthood begins, how that dream configures. Two things were really quite critical. I was sitting in an aeroplane on my way to London and reading Andre Brink's Dry White Season. And there's a line somewhere in that book that says something along the lines of, if you've never tried something, if you've never stepped out, you're never going to know what's within you. And that just rang a million bells in that moment. And I knew that what was lurking in my mind, the idea of priesthood, the idea of service, of opening up gospel values in a way that was socially relevant, was part of what I wanted to do. And priesthood was a real opportunity to do that in a way that gelled with me and the way I was wired up. So that's the one thing. I have Andre Brink to thank for that insightful line. The other was, I suppose, a longer journey of having had a, a powerful experience within the charismatic renewal of the reality of God, the power of God, and wanting to find an expression of that. But also at the same time from a very young age, having been involved in struggles around the anti-apartheid movement, having had a growing consciousness of the marginalization of people, of the kinds of institutions and dynamics that oppressed people, of which apartheid was one expression, but only an expression of a deeper pathology in our economy and in our social life. And that engagement also captured my heart from my first encounter with kind of officialdom it was in, when I was a little boy in Standard 6 in short pants. I, um, I painted on the wall, we shall overcome, um, <laughs> and got into trouble. So the two passions um, be, had to find a way of expressing themselves, and I just knew it couldn't be one at the expense of the other. So the dream is embedded somewhere in um, the myriad of little... Um, events and um, growing realization that um, something was emerging that I'd have to um, give um, attention to. And that moment in the plane just seemed to crystallize it. Came back, asked the archbishop if I 
could go into the seminary and the three weeks later I was in the seminary. What prompted this writing on the wall, we shall overcome? You were very young. Very simple. In the September of that year, Imam Abdullah Harun, towering figure in the Cape Town religious community, the Imam of the Stechman Road Mosque, was killed in detention, apparently slipped on a um, bar of soap. And at his funeral... Thousands, I think it was said something like 20 or 30,000 people gathered. And I was there in shorts and a t shirt in the midst of the tens of thousands of people. There were angry political speeches. But then the procession began to form and walk the roads of Athlone towards Mowbray to the Muslim burial ground. And I just went with it. I was caught by this wave of protest, but also perhaps more fundamentally, caught in this incredible haunting chant of Arabic prayer that was going on all around as we marched, the sense of every footstep forward reclaiming the streets of this town for justice, but also linked to this incredible murmur of prayer that was going on all around. It was the most wonderful moment. It heightened my anger, but it also immersed me in a rhythm of prayer as we walked. And that anger translated into writing, we shall overcome on the wall when I got to school on the Monday. And then there was also the next night, there was the first earthquake in South Africa, in the Western Cape. And everybody in... Our circles were saying God's anger at what has happened in the detention cells, not only to Imam Harun, but to the others who were dying there. God's anger at the system was being manifest in this dramatic earthquake. Uh, But that's what prompted the writing on the wall, this wonderful moment of this iconic funeral of an iconic figure. And you said that idea of priesthood was lurking. So the notion of faith, Being a Catholic, the Catholic Church, where does that all fit into the life story? A lot of it due to, there's a grandmother who um, was Catholic, so some of it is hereditary. A lot of it was around friends, people I cycled with, people I kind of just did things with. A lot of it was just also imbibed almost unconsciously, just people books, ideas. I've always been a bit of a child that books built. Books have always been critical, the way words are strung together, the ideas that emerge. And I read a great deal around what I suppose I would now look at as spirituality, broadly speaking. But a lot of it made sense in terms of people, and in terms of liberation theology at that time, deep sense of the same spirit that convicted me on a Pentecost Sunday at a charismatic mass was the same spirit that was called upon to set prisoners free to tell those who have a difficult time that the year of the Lord's favor is upon them to let the blind see. All of those things that had social relevance for me, it was the same spirit. And so a lot of the time that the idea of priesthood was lurking was a time of trying to find a synchronicity between that very passionate, very vocal, very upfront 
engagement with the political realities and this life of prayer and of spiritual sensitivities that were also very much a part of my expanding horizon. I certainly want to get back to your books, your love of books, but I also want to talk to you about your involvement in law. You're a law graduate from UCT. Why don't you tell us about that and how that all figures into this whole story of political engagement and spiritual fire? The law story is quite undramatic. <laughs> Having had a, a history of getting into trouble, as my elders used to say, when I matriculated, all I ever wanted to do was to be a school teacher. That was my dream. That was what my father did. That was the environment I grew up in. And that was the thing I knew I had a real feel for, real love for. And so that's what I wanted to be. And my father very wisely said to me, with your history of trouble and you're only in matric now, they're never going to allow you to be a school teacher. You're never going to get a job in a government-controlled school. You're never going to be kept in a school, and you're going to cause huge amounts of trouble that will ensure that you're kicked out of a school. So go to university, do something that if you get into trouble later and you have a family, you can work from home, you can do things. So be an accountant. Now, anybody who knows me knows I can't read figures and make any sense of them. So be a lawyer. And I did and enjoyed it, but never had a particular sense that that was my ultimate vocation. It was much more of a default position. The one thing I'm very grateful for is that it honed my analytical skills. It allowed me to learn to read in a way that was consequential. It allowed me to understand how you build a case. And later, as somebody engaged in public theology, somebody engaged in formation, in all of those things, I think it stood me and it stands me in quite good stead. Now, in the work I do in the Catholic Parliamentary Office, I have an understanding of how laws work and how to read laws and what leeway can be found in law. So I think it was providential. And as much as I need to thank Andre Brunk for the line in Dry White Season, I need to thank my father for the wisdom of telling me to do something that I didn't really want to do at that time. And to get yourself out of trouble. You seem <laughs> to have got yourself into a lot of trouble. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to juxtapose these two things purposely because I think people often don't do that. Your involvement in the charismatic renewal and your political engagement. Can you give us two icons of where that really was clear to you, that you had a charismatic experience and you've had a social experience, or maybe just conflate the two, maybe it's one experience? I would argue quite strongly now that it is one experience. That whole, as they say in theological circles, I just love the ring of the word, that whole pneumatology, that whole spirit, a kind of wisdom and insight is something that I think spills over into every aspect of life. That's fairly foundational Christian teaching. I think it is the reading and in liberation theology and in struggle spirituality, 
it is always the prophets that we go back to. You know, thus says the Lord, let justice flow like a river, and all of those wonderful stirring sayings. But I think it's the it's Luke 4, Jesus going into the synagogue, unfolding the scroll, and then reading Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I sent me to bring good news to the poor, and all of that, that really brings it together for me. So my icon is Jesus and the scroll in a very institutional setting. It was that notion that it could be done in an institutional setting that afterwards, after the kind of dry white season moment, began to make sense because it was possible to do it on the margins, outside of institutions. You might not have had the same listenership, but that reality that Jesus proclaimed that prophetic ministry in the institution, it unsettled the institution, but that it could be done and that some people had to take that stand in that place was where I felt I had to be. So the icon is that moment of standing up in the synagogue, that moment of reappropriating Isaiah for the context, as Jesus did, as all of us do. We reappropriate real powerful gospel or religious insights, the truths of foundational texts, and we interpret them in our context so that the same fire can emerge. And that's the moment for me. And it's the recapture of what we so often call a dangerous memory. Jesus was recapturing Isaiah's dangerous memory, and ours is a similar task. I really identify with that. I remember being on retreat once, praying Luke 4, and this anger overcame me as I heard Jesus overthrowing that temple and preaching into the temple to bring the good news to the poor. So how has the church done that? The church was involved in the struggle. It has a shifty history as well in the struggle. I think all institutions, all formations have actually had shifty histories in the struggle. It's the nature of institutional presence, but have always, and I think this is true for the earlier political parties, it's true for a whole lot of civic organizations as we've come to call them, it's true for the church, that its dominant face has often been that of accommodation with injustice, with wrong, with security, with safety, with the comfort zone it's created. But it's always had, and we can go through history, and every epoch reveals this, a prophetic expression. It's always had what I called a moment ago a dangerous memory that's lurked, that's demanded attention, that's open spaces, never the dominant space, but a space big enough not to be ignored. And there are quite iconic figures in our own history we don't remember as well. You know, we remember the great and towering figures of people like Archbishop Dennis Hurley. But there was a bishop of Cape Town called Francis Henneman who wrote a letter in 1939 warning of the Nationalist Party's ascendancy and likening it to the Nazi regime under which he had grown up. 
or maybe it was 1940, but uh, it was in that time. And there were these figures and warning about compromise. So there was that a space that had already been created. It already, as I often say to keep my charismatic vocabulary, it had often been hallowed. It had already been made holy by the prayer and the action of other activists in the church. But it also was a time when we were consciously drawing on sources, rereading some of the figures in church history, rereading the kinds of anger of some of the saints as they railed against injustices of the Middle Ages. They all of the times have had those voices and reappropriating those voices. So it was an incredibly fertile theological time. And for some of us, it was also a time where we realized that slogans were important and I, for one, mouthed them loudly and regularly. But we also realized that part of the legacy that we who had the luxury of longer theological training had to also ground this passionate activity in something more theological, in a foundation that couldn't easily be dismissed as being out of sync with our tradition. Ours was the task to synchronize it and to make sure it was a development of our tradition rather than an odd deviation. You spoke of dangerous memory. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's an idea of Johann Baptist Metz. Mm. So what is the dangerous memory of the church today? What is that memory that, as Metz would put it, perhaps simplifying it, would impel us to action? They are still oppressed people. If the church has really taken seriously the call that emerged from the thinking of the Second Vatican Council, which I think in another conversation is also to be explored as a turning point in creating spaces for an ecclesiology that was welcoming of the margins, if we take that seriously, if we take the option for the poor seriously, if we take issues like the universal destination of goods seriously, all things which the church has taught for ages, if we take that seriously, then we cannot not continue to theologize and create pastoral action around those who are left behind, those who are in the margins. The same um, John Battista Metz said that our task as church is to understand, resist, and overcome the places of people suffering. And so that dangerous memory of what has happened throughout history by that prophetic group who've never been in the dominant places, but who have not been erased from the church's face, that that group continue to be concerned about the people who all our forebears in the struggle have been concerned about. It's the marginalized, it's the poor. It takes the face today of the countless poor people around the world, the people who live on a few rands a day, the people who have to rear families against unbelievable 
global odds. It's the migrants and the refugees, of which we have the biggest number since the Second World War. It's the women who are abused in relationships that ought to be providing security and love and nurture. It's the children who are left behind. It's all of those people who are on the margins and those who are emotionally, psychologically and intellectually in places of marginalization. It's to reach out there. It's to find an expression of church that speaks to their heart of not being abandoned, of not being forgotten in the church's life. And indeed, if we listen to the prophetic voice of Pope Francis, it's in fact the margins that we need to be paying attention to, not as a charitable exercise, but as a listening post for developing our theology and our pastoral practices. The cries of the poor on the margins are what needs to shape our theological understanding and our self-identification as Catholics. Someone who appears to be very important to you is Archbishop Oscar Romero uh, of El Salvador, now Saint Oscar Romero. You were there for his canonization in Rome last year. Tell us about this figure. I think he's little known to South Africans. Uh, Oscar Romero just looms incredibly large in my thinking, in my understanding of church, in my sense of how hope triumphs over the most incredible sets of adversity. I was in Rome. I had made up my mind years ago that in the what seemed most unlikely event of him ever being recognized as a saint by the institutional church, I would go there for a whole lot of reasons. I think it has to be said that even before he died, he was a saint in the eyes of the poor, in the eyes of those who suffered, of those who were deeply bruised and battered by the experience of the oligarchy in El Salvador and in other parts of South America. Often the phrase, the voice of the voiceless is used, but there are bits of his writing that speaks about not being the voice of the voiceless, but empowering the voiceless to speak for themselves, developing agency. A few things strike me. The absolute bravery, almost in some ways bravado, of his stirring messages you know, military, lay down your guns, don't kill your brothers. If I should die, I will rise in the aspirations of the El Salvadorian people. So at that level, I found a kindred spirit. I found a bigger brother, a church leader, who I could say, we speak the same language, we dream the same dreams, we pray to the same God, and the substance of our prayers are the same broken, oppressed, marginalized people. So that's one level. The other level was that there's just no end to the way in which we're surprised by God. He didn't start off as the hero of the struggle. He started off as a conservative Roman-trained priest and then a conservative bishop who was nominated by other bishops for that post because he was so safe. 
It was the influence of people like Retio Grande, the Jesuit friend who stuck by him, even when they were thinking radically different thoughts. It was the experience of having the honesty to look at the situation and to read what was happening and to call structural sin sin. The fact that conversion is possible, that God uses the most unlikely people and sometimes the most unpromising people to do things that are game-changing. Just every institution in his life was ranged against him. There were a few other bishops in South America at the time, especially those who'd been appointed previously and that championed liberation theology, who were his only kind of Episcopal support. But a whole generation was growing up who listened to him on radio and drew courage from that. And of course, it was Retio Grandi's death that really clinched it for Romero. So to be a reader of history, to be open to the spirit to accept the ministry of solidarity and to learn to theologize from the place of pain are the great legacies of Romero. And so it was wonderful to be in Rome with people who were walking around with Romero T-shirts. Of all places, in McDonald's, I met a woman who was (laughs) um, confirmed by Romero as a 12-year-old. So that was a wonderful moment for me. And a moment of remembering that the struggle continues. You've come alive as we spoke of Romero. What was that game-changing moment in your own life? All of my game-changing moments are moments in the extended sense. I think it was coming to a realization that I wanted to be a priest that that was going to be the route that, in a way, said that other routes were going to not be mine. They would have other people's names on it. The moment that we understood that we were church, we weren't the dominant voice of the church necessarily, but we were church, and there was a legitimacy to what we were doing. There was a baptismal authority for what we were doing. So if game-changing, as I understand it, is a moment in which you are able to exercise power or leverage because of an insight that has taken shape in your heart and mind, then mine has always been a much longer term. The wow moment that isn't immediate, but the wow moment that comes after reflection. So the moment I realized we were church and that this was going to be a fulfilling ministry, not necessarily an easy one, not necessarily one that would win supports of many, but that it was legitimate, that it was wonderful, that it was me. Because once you realize it's you, then you have the, the courage, you build up the perspicacity to be able to reach out to those goals. So in it for the long haul, there's no Damascus experience, as it were. No Damascus experience. That's very um, true. Not in for the quick trip around the corner, definitely for the long haul. I know little about the CPLO, but of what I know of government and policy and politics, they are very much long haul policies, right? And so your work seems to reflect that impetus to be patient. Tell us about the work of the CPLO. The work of the CPLO is an ongoing engagement with the people who create our laws, who shape our policies, 
I'm a firm believer that there are three real areas in which we operate in order to bring about change. The whole ministry of teaching, however you understand teaching, I'm not thinking of classroom teaching or university teaching only or any institutional teaching. I'm thinking of the way in which we educate, whether we do it in through preaching, through teaching, formally, through catechism, through example, or that whole world of teaching. We, by our words and actions, shape the hearts and minds of others, open up possibilities for their further reflection, all of those good things. That's one area. There's the area of activism, being on the barricades, the numerous hashtags that seem to really energize our contemporary population. And then there's the work at the places where leverage can be exercised. They are three strongly complementary works, and we engage in the conversations, which is a key word for us, the dialogues around policy, around legislation as it emerges from those policies through the various stages of the parliamentary process. We look at it and comment on it. We bring the wisdom of the church. I like to use the phrase attributed to David Tracy that the work is about bringing our privately held beliefs into public discussion. And that's what we do. We follow the process, we engage when the public is invited to engage, we provide space where through our roundtables we bring together a really wide variety of people, a cross-section of people, parliamentarians, researchers, bureaucrats in the parliamentary system, people at the coalface, academics, activists, all of them into a conversation knowing that those are not spaces that that particular configuration of people generally have access to. We provide that space around specific issues. We write, we research, we do all of those good things that make for advocacy. And the liaison dimension is also about keeping faith leadership in conversation with political leadership, not government only but political leadership across the party spectrum, and to keep those channels for liaison open because the real danger is that all of those important shapers of people's ideas only encounter each other in sound bites on television or on radio or on some other media or social platform, and that's not enough to form an intelligent opinion on something. Tracy's ideas of theology in the public square. People criticize the place of faith in society. I mean, laïcité in France comes to mind. But I think there is a place for our social engagement, and we can't confuse the church being involved in the direct politics of a city with our engagement with those politics. Could you say something about that? I think there is a difference. The church is called because the church is people. It's you and I and a whole range of other people. It's us and our lives and our dignity. So anything that touches on that is clearly the church's task. It's our task. It's your task and my task. I often remind people of a 1985 document which 
John Paul II had asked the International Theological Commission to reflect on, and that was on what they thought were the absolute outcomes of Catholic social teaching. Rich as it is, aspirational in some ways, certainly inspirational, what should it contribute to? And the International Theological Commission came up with three things. Freedom, equality, which is often understood as justice, and participation. So the church, being you and I, needs to find those spaces that enhance all three. And sometimes it will be the expression of activism, but it will also be the expression of participation in formal politics. The church has no right and doesn't have the competence to tell people how to vote, but it certainly has the duty to encourage people to participate. And I think that for me is the key kind of hermeneutic, to be able to say participation in order to enhance justice and equality, stroke justice, that's our task. Now, what platform we best suited to, or I'm best suited to, or you best suited to, is obviously wide and varied. But to participate is a key imperative. So ongoing politics, the small p, if you like, the work of being involved in day-to-day better living is the work of all of us. And we are meant to be instructing the hearts of people to inspire them to do just that. Very sound advice as we move towards national elections. My final question to you. How do you see yourself, your contribution to the church, to public civil life as expanding our horizons? I think the pneumatology that we began this conversation with is always one of expansion. That same spirit that instructs, instructs in a very direct way Paul to go on missionary journeys. It's an expansion. The whole work within the dominant faith community of Jesus' time to see things differently, i.e. the Council of Jerusalem, um, you know, Peter's understanding of the food that could be eaten, is an expansion in order to embrace the full humanity of people, in order to give expression to that full humanity. So the work, just the very fundamental notion of faith-seeking understanding, Ansem's old line, is one of expansion. Because theology can never be, and church life can never be, about making a museum of our safe spaces. It's never about keeping what's comfortable and profitable to us in place. It's about ensuring that the glory of God is a person fully alive. And that notion of enlivening, of nurturing, of bringing the full humanity to the fore with all its constituent elements of which our social lives, the common good, is a major aspect, is the ongoing work. And that's never done because circumstances change times change, the ways of marginalization change, the ways of access to the things that make us human change. And so it's always an expanding horizon. Peter John, we didn't get to your book collection, but thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for all that you've contributed to church and civic life. Thank you. 
please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Ricardo De Silva. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.